Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome, everybody, to the Bauer and Rose podcast, the Bauer and Rose show, right here on Sirius XM, the Patriot Channel 125, and Brought to you by our friends through the podcast universe at justthenews.com. You can get us, subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Or have Gary just tell you how to do it. He'll tell you how to do it. Make sure and hit that subscribe button so you will be alerted whenever Bauer and Rose uh, hit the airwaves. Um, you, you, folks, he's saying this. This was a little dig at me to begin the show, right? Because he knows I'm I'm technologically challenged. But uh, that's an uh, I just want to let you know, Tom, I wanted to brag about this this morning. Last night, I stayed up late. I, I finally got the VCR to to work right. Uh, so you took the the VCR, because you're obviously in Davos with your friends. It's uh, the middle of the afternoon. And that's part of the reason we're having a bit of a delay here, because Bauer, Bauer is heading off to a luncheon with uh, John Kerry and Al Gore to talk about, to talk about rain bombs. But I, I, I do have to say, normally you and I when assessing, surveying the world in which we live, the social collapse which we describe and define uh, all too accurately and in detail on this podcast, there is reason for optimism. There is reason for hope uh, because John Kerry is is has announced himself now, not that we needed an announcement, we've known it for decades, as one of the select few humans chosen by the God who doesn't exist – to save the planet that the uh, non-existent God uh, didn't create. I mean, you're hanging out with all your buddies in Davos, billionaires telling other billionaires what normal people think and, more importantly, what they should think. How's it going out there in Switzerland? Yeah, uh, I'm about (laughs) as close to Switzerland as as, – you are the reality, my friend. Uh, <laughs> Touche. <laughs> that was pretty good for this Touché. early. Uh, no, look, it, it, what a spectacle. You, you know, I, I couldn't help but chuckle, Tom, that uh, these uh, folks that prayed around uh, very, very clearly believing they're better than everybody else, uh, they, they um, you, you know the kind of meals they're eating, right? They're eating, th- you know, they're having meals that probably cost more than a than a blue collar American makes in six months or whatever. But the thing that jumped out at me is that uh, apparently all these almost godlike figures still have this debased sexual urge because Davos is crawling with uh, high class, if you can say it. Uh, there's any high class. Uh, prostitutes uh, who are charging apparently two thousand five hundred dollars uh, a year. Now, 
A year? Yes. No, uh, uh, an event. I'm sorry. I was going to say, that's, you know, maybe I'll sign up. (laughs) Can you imagine the carbon that is being put into the atmosphere during those acts between these billionaires and these Well, there's there's inflation even in the booming prostitute business. I saw something this morning. I think it was at justthenews.com. Maybe it was Daily Caller. I can't remember. That's why I perhaps should keep notes. That the price of a hooker... Uh, in Davos has gone up from an average of seventeen fifty to twenty five hundred bucks in the last two years. Of course, this is the first uh, resumption of the in person Davos. I don't know how we as a society survived the pandemic. That they, of course, proscribed our responses to it for the two and a half. I guess this is the uh, it, it was. This is the first time in three years that our our fabulous self appointed glitterati have reassembled in Davos. But uh, Bill Maher, the comedian, who I think is morphing from comedian into social observer, made the point that that the entire narrative of the pandemic and the damage it's caused uh, completely deflects from what actually it wasn't the pandemic that caused all this damage it w- it was our response to the pandemic yeah a- absolutely well tom i i mean i don't want to um there's a lot to talk about here but i i'm still i'm still focused on this inflation you refer to um uh, I, I mean eggs have gone up you know uh, gasoline famously well this is all biden inflation and it's even affecting the price of prostitutes and you would think that Hunter Biden would be lobbying his father to get the price of prostitutes to be put into the consumer price. Well, he index. gets, although he does get, he's a very good negotiator. He gets volume discounts, does he not? I would imagine that uh, he, he does. Of course, he's now in a uh, a paternity battle with a uh, sex worker, shall we say, who uh, bore his child that Joe Biden, I don't even think is acknowledged. But I want to get to this White House cover up issue. I know Davos is a lot of fun. The White House still, as of this week, refusing to even discuss Biden's classified documents. And these documents appear to have been blown around like feathers from a pillow opened in a windstorm. The DOJ won't talk. The National Archives is AWOL. The special counsel's office won't talk. But notice how none of the above, the DOJ, the White House, the National Archives, the special counsel couldn't shut up about Trump's declassified classified documents. I mean, we got Fort Knox secrecy going on here now. The Biden plan is to deflect to defame, to delay, to deny. Uh, we got a Fort Knox of, uh, of uh, secrecy going on here. Yeah, you know, Tom, to make a, a larger observation for uh, conservatives around the country that are listening in, and uh, I, I know one of the big complaints in the conservative world at the grassroots level is why, when Republicans are in power, do we accomplish so little and when Democrats are in power, uh, they seem to be able to accomplish incredible things. And the answer with the tiniest, is, tiniest, and slimmest of majorities. Yes, that, that's right. And one of the answers to that question, and I'm not making excuses, I'm just giving you reality, and we tend to forget it. When Republicans come into power, 
they are not in control of the huge federal bureaucracy and all of its moving parts. And I know this from experience because under Reagan, uh, I was under Secretary of Education and we had uh, 16,000 employees and 15,950 of them were hostile to everything that Ronald Reagan believed and that I believed. And I could not trust virtually anybody on my staff. If I did a memo to the career bureaucrats on a subject, uh, I would read it in the Washington Post the next day. So in contrast, when a Democrat comes in power, there are parties all over town. In the liberal bureaucracy, or if you want to put a harder edge on it, the deep state is welcoming the new leadership that's coming in because now we can accomplish so much. So every step of the way, Donald Trump, Donald Trump could not make a phone call to a foreign leader without the content of the phone call being leaked to the media within 24 hours. Joe Biden makes phone calls to foreign leaders all the time. You think there's any reason to believe that the guy who is constantly tripping over his words, saying idiotic things, saying things that are inaccurate, forgetting where he is. You don't think that's happening when he's making those phone calls to these foreign leaders? Of course it does. But we never get a transcript. We never hear an insider very disturbed about the declining mental acuity of the president said that he embarrassed the United States in a recent phone call where he thought he was talking to a different foreign leader than he was talking to. I mean, you know it's happy, but we never hear it about it. When, you know, the, the Mar-a-Lago um, controversy, uh, we had stories every day alleging what was in the classified documents. And as far as we know, every one of those stories was false. Every one of them. We were told it was nuclear secrets. We were told that he was going to, you know, there was indications he was going to give these documents to Putin. And they were leaking at the, these same federal agencies, the apparatus that you're referring to. They were the source of the leaks for all of this. And now suddenly that the leaks in the Titanic have all been sealed. And again, it's Fort Knox. Yeah. You know, um, our friends over at Breitbart this morning, Tom, have a... Uh, a long analysis of the Biden family's uh, partnership with the communist Chinese. And I have to admit to you, when I was reading it um, over my single fried egg I have every morning, uh, I had forgotten some of this stuff. And with or without I, yolk? Uh, with yolk. Definitely have to have you know, yolk. Yolk is not good. Well, I, it's, I feel fine. Uh, famous last words. I'll probably feel <laughs> over right in the middle of the podcast. Um, the the uh, at the very time. Well, I, it's it's a comprehensive argue, uh, article. I I um, I commend it to people. But it wasn't just Hunter. You, you know, it was his uncle and aunt, and they were. Hunter getting- was the bag man. Hunter doesn't right, have the mental acuity to uh, to fry an egg. So in the, the peak of all these dealings between Hunter and the Chinese Communist Energy Company uh, was in 2017, 2018. And during a good bit of that time, he was living in the Wilmington, Delaware house where presumably classified documents 
We're sitting in the garage, the library, and a third location. Now, Tom, just to put quickly some things out here that people have probably forgotten. Um, Hunter was receiving millions of dollars from multiple front companies that were being used by the Chinese Communist Energy Company. The Chinese Communist Energy Company by itself was controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. It, you can't use the name Chinese in your name if you're a Chinese company without that uh, stamp of approval from the Chinese Communist Party. One of the key people in the company was by Hunter Biden's own words on the laptop. The guy everybody believes heads Chinese intelligence. Hunter knew that and he was dealing with the guy. Uh, one of the meetings, they gave Hunter a uh, $80,000 diamond. I, I had completely forgotten about that. There was another thing in, this, uh, in the story that said that at one point, some of these front companies gave Hunter his uncle and his aunt credit cards with unlimited expenditures and they promptly all went out and did a $100,000 shopping spree. Right, and we don't know whether the money went from Joe to Hunter or from Hunter to Joe. There are rumors racing around Bauer and Rose Global Headquarters that you may well have knocked your audio cable out and that we are to take a break so we can fix Gary's latest technical technical faux pas. You're listening to the Bauer and Rose podcast on Sirius XM, the Patriot Channel 125 and justthenews.com. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back, everybody. Tom Rose, Gary Bauer with you. Can't really take Gary anywhere where there's technical equipment, but we've now... Uh, shackled him to his chair. His arms are tied behind his back. So we should have great audio from here on out. We were talking before Bauer kicked his cable out about the overwhelming negative hostility of the massive Leviathan known as the federal government. Uh, We haven't really talked about this, but one of President Trump's, I don't want to call it mistakes, but one of our uh, errors of judgment or omissions of judgment was initially not to take dramatic reform of the federal government more seriously. Now, that changed in the latter part of 2020. The president released a plan to reimpose what's called Schedule F. And Schedule F is an executive order that he signed that uh, the America First Committee, which is Trump's Uh, campaign arm, his think tank, so to speak, has promised to uh, reissue if he wins. And this is huge because it would effectively upend the modern civil service system, which allows unaccountable bureaucrats um, to 
worked for generations in their positions free from the threat of any kind of political interference. Now, the very first thing that Joe Biden did upon assuming the presidency in 2021 was to rescind that executive order and establish, uh, go back to the old way of doing things. What 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 President Trump tried to do, and Gary, we are first to admit it, we were too late. We didn't get it done quickly enough, was to establish a new Schedule F employment category for federal employees. This sounds in the weeds. I know I was there for four years. I don't even get it. But are you talking to me? I, I fell off to sleep there for a second. <laughs> no, no, no. This is this is I'm actually trying to uh, reinforce the point you made that of the 16,000 employees that you managed at the Department of Education, 15,962 were hostile to you. Now, what what we tried to do was to make critical reforms in every executive branch uh, so that many, many more employees would be fireable by the president. The, it's the only way we could think of to bring this deep state to heel. Tens of thousands of civil servants under our plan who served in roles deemed to have some influence over policy would be reassigned to Schedule F employees. And the farther up the food chain you are in the federal government, I was a Schedule F employee. I'm presuming you were as well, meaning I could be fired on a moment's notice and almost was about six times. Yeah, um, yes. Uh, I recall each, each of those incidents, Tom, uh, frantic calls from you late at night. Uh, and no, Tom, I cannot hire you. <laughs> anyway, this was, uh, this was one of the most important things, if not the most important thing that we did not get done. Yeah. You know, Tom, it, it's amazing how many nameless, faceless people actually run this city and they're virtually all uh, liberals. I remember one of my uh, first experiences testifying before Congress, and uh, I was briefed by my professional staff, and they told me that a particular congressman was interest in, interested in a particularly obscure government program, and he was going to ask me some questions about that program, and they assured me it had no ideological significance one way or the other, which they were correct about. But they said, he's going to ask you this. And, and you know, there's no reason, Undersecretary, you would know the answer to that. This is, this is the answer. And then he's going to ask this. And then this is the answer. And then he's going to ask that. And this is the answer. And I looked at it and I convinced myself there was nothing there that would affect, you know, my conservative philosophy. It was nothing that would betray Ronald Reagan in any way. So what I didn't know was that the congressman really wasn't interested in that program, but there were people on his staff that were interested on that program. <laughs> so they went to him and said, uh, you know, we believe the undersecretary wants to make a strong statement in favor of this program. And Congressman, this would be a chance for you to show as a Democrat some bipartisanship. So here's some questions you can ask Undersecretary Bauer. So I go up to testify. I've had some heated exchanges with other Democrats. We get to him, and he goes, uh, now, uh, Undersecretary Bauer, I want to ask you about the such-and-such such, uh, program. Uh, uh, 
and he starts moving papers around because he can't find the questions. And his staff, like, they're looking at each other like, oh, no, he's lost. So they're getting up and they're going through the papers, too. And, you know, literally this is going on, you know, and the chairman's looking over. And so being obnoxious and still young and rash, I said, uh, Congressman, I believe what you wanted to ask me was, and I gave the first question, and I said, and um, I'm supposed to tell you, and I gave the answer. And I said, then you're going to follow up by asking me this, and then I'm going to tell you that, and then your last question is going to be this, and my answer is that. So I did the whole Q&A by myself, much to the chagrin of everybody in the room, but nobody knew what to do about it other than the fact that I had just displayed the idiocy that exists in this city where bureaucrats working for members of Congress and bureaucrats in the executive branch are the ones running things. One final point on this, Tom, because it's so timely. The gazillion page omnibus bill that passed the Senate with the support of all the Democrats and about a third of the Republicans, I don't know, 2,000, 2,500, 3,500, 4,500 pages. They get that bill literally a day before it's going to be voted on. Nobody in the Senate or the House had a chance to read it. That would be bad enough. But it's even worse, Tom, because it wasn't written even by the Democrat members of Congress. It was written by the staffs. The staffs are in rooms writing these huge bills that then were brought to the floor and Republican and Democrat leaders tell their party members, yeah, you're, you're supposed to vote aye on this. Well, what's in it? Don't bother me about what's in it. It's all been worked out. And that's why we are in such a mess. The $1.7 trillion omnibus horribilis drops uh, 4,000 pages at 3 a.m. and the roll call votes start five hours later. I don't know whether to get into this. Yeah, well, actually, now we're going to get into it because I've just brought it up. The debt ceiling. Here we are again, and the Wall Street Journal reminds us that the only solid rule to negotiating is that if you're going to take a hostage, you better be prepared to shoot it. That's that's kind of the question here. Are we prepared? What is our strategy? Spending is out of control. It's more than doubled, almost tripled, in fact, as a percent of GDP just in the past decade. Our debt is now more than 100% of our GDP. But what, if anything, are Republicans really, truly prepared to stand behind to stop or at least slow this spending madness? Now, the journal yesterday, or earlier in the week, rather, is already proposing a glorious capitulation that a tough stance is all but impossible. But there is a strategy out there that I like. I don't know where it goes ultimately, but at least it helps us. Uh, uh, at least it helps us begin to frame the public narrative. Um, I don't know how much traction it'll have, but it's 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 to pass a bill in the House that guarantees against default by mandating that all tax revenue that's collected during these these fluctuating periods is to go to debt repayment, Medicare, and Social Security. We take in more than $4 trillion a year in tax revenue. So it would guarantee against default because all tax revenues that, that come in would go to debt 
service first, Medicare, Social Security. So it would take default off the table. It would deprive Democrats of uh, their worst case scenario uh, outlays because that's what they thrive on. You Republicans can't be trusted. The country will go bankrupt. We'll default on our debt. It takes it off the table, but it leaves everything else open. It leaves all the discretionary spending open. It leaves all the defense uh, spending open. The only problem, of course, Gary, is we've only got a five-vote majority in the House, and we don't have the Senate or the White House. So how realistic do you think something like that would be? Well, it's a, it, it's a, one of the better ideas that, I, that I've heard, Tom. Uh, but I, I, I agree with the, the general analysis. I mean, I, you know, I was thinking about this over the last couple of days. Um, we, we've done this a number of times. And what happens is the media is all in labeling us as irresponsible. We're going to uh, hurt the credit rating of the United States government. Oh, global uh, recession, people yes, see right. corpses and, lining the streets. And and some you know, some people have made a legitimate point, I think. Yeah. I, I think the economy is in trouble. And instead of it being Biden's economic problem, the media and the Democrats will blame any economic dislocations on the, the, the Republicans' brinkmanship mm-hmm. and the undermining of the budget process. Because we never have an end. We we, we have strategies to start these conflicts to start these confrontations, but we never seem to have the ability to follow through. And what I fear is that what's happened so many times in the past, we spend months in advance of these crises talking tough, promising to hold the line, uh, only to cave, or in this case, at the last minute split, uh, at the moment when it counts. And that, of course, would provide a huge victory for Biden and another uh, disastrous defeat for Republicans. But, of course, not threatening to do this would outrage our base. Of course. And, and that would be a big uh, victory for, for Joe Biden, who I think one of the main purposes of one goal, the, one of the main goals of the Democrats and the leftist infrastructure and the media is to discourage as many Republicans as possible to get them to drop out of the system. There's a huge effort underway right now to divide uh, Christians over whether they ought to be invi- involved in politics or not, because Christians are the largest part of the Republican coalition that votes like 95 percent for conservative candidates. And if the Democrats could discourage five, 10 percent of them to, you know, to just sit in the pews and wait for crisis return and forget politics, uh, the country's gone. Socialism prevails, et cetera. So we do have to worry about demoralizing the base. So I don't have an answer, Tom, but I can tell you one thing, that if we're going to do this, then right now the RNC and Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy ought to be on the phone with the the most uh, wealthy Republican donors in the country. There aren't many. There aren't many of them anymore. Most billionaires are are all in on the on the left's enterprise. But go to those wealthy Republicans now and say we need to raise a quick 30, 40, 50 million dollars because we're getting ready to get clobbered here, and we want to run a nationwide ad campaign that explains that the problem you're seeing in Washington is not about us trying to save your children and grandchildren from crushing debt. It's these Democrats 
who are taking your money and throwing it at every one of their pet projects, and they're going to destroy the country if we let them to keep getting the irony, of course, is that if this continues to go on, their constant fear mongering about Republicans triggering default, this will end up in default at some stage the laws of physics are going to have to apply. I want to get back for a second to this. I can't remember who uh, originally raised this idea of a House-passed bill that would guarantee against default by mandating that all the tax revenue that comes in be first dedicated toward meeting our debt obligations, paying Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security. Remember, we're, we take in $4 trillion a year, so it's not like we can't afford those elements. So that would take nope. default off the table. The problem is, of course, Mitch McConnell's not going to lift a finger to pass something like that in the Senate, and then Joe Biden would veto. So how do we well, make – Mitch going, McConnell can't pass it in the Senate because he's only got 48 senators and 14 or 15 of them are appeasers. So Mitch – I mean Mitch McConnell could threaten to punish those uh, senators that are perfectly happy with spending money we don't have. Uh, but I, I can't imagine that that he would do that. So there's one problem. The other problem is, OK, Tom, a lot of our mutual friends will go, well, what about defense spending? You know, are we going to we going to guarantee that that what about military salaries? What about, you know, veterans programs? What about are we going to have to close the, the schools and end the, the you know, the federal uh, school lunch program? One of the problems we have, Tom, is that if you poll the American people, there's a decreasing number of them that worry, really worry about the federal debt. And even if they say they are worried about it, they think the federal debt is caused by somebody else's federal program, not the one that they like. So there's no – my thought was that if this bill could pass in the House – then it would be the template, the scaffolding, if you will, upon which Republicans can stand to push back against the Democrats' uh, fear-mongering and attempt to deflect and to blame Republicans for a uh, quote-unquote debt crisis, debt ceiling, uh, raising the debt ceiling uh, crisis. But we've only got a five-seat majority in the House. Do you think that could even pass in the House? I, I I doubt it. It it could, but I you know it would be almost um, a, a miracle. And um, you know I re- I remember Tom having this conversation at some big conservative meeting. It had to be ten fifteen years ago. One of our congressmen came in and you know was talking about how oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do it. And it was one of the good guys. Oh, we're going to do it. And they opened it up for questions, and I raised my hand. Yes, Gary. And I said, uh, so what's your end game? Well, what do you mean? I said, well, when every newspaper in the country, every TV commentator is telling the American people, you're destroying all these federal programs. It's your fault this is happening. It's your fault. Well, we'll hold strong. I go, I said, I know you will, Congressman. But what about the guy that got elected from a suburban competitive district outside Philadelphia? Is that guy going to hold strong? There's probably 20 or 30 House Republicans that right now in their minds, they're saying, ah, you know, I'm going to stand tough on this. But they're in districts. And I think there's about 20 of them in districts that Joe Biden carried when he ran for president. So are those guys going to hold strong because in those districts? So what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? I don't know. 
I don't know. I mean, if we if we knew the answer before telling it over the air, I would want to figure out a way to increase the size of our audience because that would be <laughs> really breaking news, you know. Uh, it's, uh, it's tough. It's tough. I'm it's just, really I'm tough. terrified that we're going to, I think the the actual, uh, federal debt ceiling is hit. It either was hit late this week or will hit early next week and that the treasury through extraordinary measures will be able to, uh, shift monies and accounts through about June. So we've got two, three, four months uh, to deal with this, I, I just think we have to have a strategy that recognizes reality, but that enables us to claim some victory in doing something to get spending under control without risking a quote unquote default, which of course isn't going to happen. We can't allow that to happen. But Mitch McConnell thinks that's the end game. Mitch McConnell yeah. thinks we've got to say that now. We've got to say we're not going to shut the government down now. You don't enter which into is, an. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Which is well, that's that's ridiculous. Obviously, you know. I mean, it's uh, Tom. Thirty years ago, uh, Republicans would be reluctant to raise the debt ceiling, and we wouldn't do it until the Democrats agreed to uh, some limitations in various areas or a strengthening of the budget process. That was back when Democrats actually were interested in being bipartisan, where there were when there were responsible Democrats in the Democrat Party who would say to themselves, look, this is a tough vote for Republicans. You know, it is. We all understand that. So we got to give them something. Come on. And in exchange, they'll do what we want and we'll have a bipartisan vote to raise the debt ceiling. The Demo those days, in the Democrat Party are over all the media crap about Republicans are not willing to compromise. This is a perfect example where it's the Democrats that are not willing to compromise. The Republicans are asking for a compromise. They're saying, OK, we don't like raising the debt ceiling, but we'll do it. We'll do it because we worry about our credit rating. But in exchange, you've got to show some semblance of caring about this out of control deficit spending. And nobody in the Democrat Party is willing to do that. No. And I wonder whether our caucus is strong enough to stand behind even something that theoretically would be symbolic to demonstrate to the American people that we're not, not only are we not irresponsible, we are responsible, we recognize our limits, but we also recognize that our treasury takes in more than enough money to satisfy our debt obligations, to pay for Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. We can argue about all the rest until the Democrats get some sense that we're not going to back down. We need some package of spending uh, responsibility. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. This is the Bauer and Rose Show on Sirius XM, the Patriot Channel 125, and the podcast, the Bauer and Rose podcast at justthenews.com. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
Welcome back, everybody. Tom Rose, Gary Bauer with you. Here's a story that I know will will touch your heart. It's the, uh, it's the story, Gary, of polyamory in America. They used to call it bigamy. Some even dared referred to it as sin. Now it falls under the umbrella of consensual non-monogamy, or CNM, which for the uninitiated encompasses purely sexual liaisons without love and commitment um, of polyamory, such as swinging or open relationships. And according to The Economist, now one in 20 partnered people, you like that? Partnered people is in a CNM relationship, while one in five has engaged in a CNM relationship at some point in the partnership. Now, don't you know that now These folks want their rights, too. After all, Congress's recent legal codification of gay marriage isn't good enough because it only codifies such unions that are between only two people. And thus, it completely erases the long-neglected, victimized, polyamorous community. So guess what? Not only now are they demanding their rights, but they're actually starting to get them. Um, In September... A judge in New York City allowed the third partner of a deceased man to argue that he should inherit their rent-stabilized apartment. Now, a dozen – I didn't know this. This is a – a dozen states allow triple-parent child custody. In 2021, in Somerville, Massachusetts, a suburb of Boston, that was the first city in the country to offer multi-partner domestic partnerships, followed by – Several other Boston suburbs, Arlington, Cambridge, um, um, municipal employers must now provide health insurance and under other benefits to employees' partners. After all, polyamorous people, Gary, they report very high levels of discrimination by employers and by landlords. They say the courts often treat them unfairly in custody disputes. And um, it's not just the polyamorous that are suffering this discrimination. Their pets are too. They say they're less likely to walk their dog because of the hostility they'll face on the streets. I think we've got a new class of victimized Americans who now need special protections. This this gets uh, really complicated, Tom, particularly if a polyamorous group – uh, in the middle of the relationship starts transitioning in different ways. I mean, it could, this could, you know, the mathematical possibilities are being, now it is January something or other, depending on when our podcast goes up, uh, 2023. I think, Tom, right now we ought to take a slip of paper, write down on it the date and the year we believe uh, polyamorous Pride Month uh, will be instituted in America, uh, and how lo- how quickly that will happen. I, you know, we are we're in a sorry state of affairs, Tom. If the if the budget deficit risk uh, bringing us down, the virtue deficit, uh, the flight from uh, Judeo Christian uh, values, the uh, complete breakdown of the American family will lay us low even quicker than that. Uh, Tom, what's the difference between polygamy, which is having being married to several people, and polyamorous? Is it that you don't have to be married to those people? It's just that you're, yeah. It used I, to be called bigamy or polygamy. It was, 
I remember the day when some crazy people actually called that sinful behavior. Yeah. You know, Tom, Lincoln, in, in um, a couple of speeches, said that the, the two great evils that America would eventually have to deal with was, one, slavery, and two, polygamy. He literally identified those two things as a threat to the American Republic. And as you know, being a student of history, uh, Utah was not permitted to become a state exactly. until they agreed to put into their state constitution that they would outlaw and prohibit polygamy in the state of Utah. Because it was viewed correctly as a huge impediment to women. Because women are the victims of bigamous and polygamous marriages. Our two sides ask different questions. The left keeps thinking that the definition of marriage or these same-sex relationships or polyamory or whatever the heck you want to call it is unfair to the people involved. Opponents of this kind of stuff think it's bad for society. Now, proponents have it a lot easier than we do since all they need to do is to focus public attention on the individuals impacted by social norms, gay people who love each other. And then they ask, you know, the public, is it fair to continue to deprive these people of their rights? Now, if you and I 10 years ago during the gay marriage debate had said, you know, this is just going to open Pandora's box and pretty soon we're going to be talking about polygamy, bigamy, all kinds of relationships that thousands of years of Judeo-Christian civilization, not just Judeo-Christian civilization, Eastern civilizations as well, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, uh, Indian, uh, had all frowned upon and banned, we would have been called conspiracy theorists, fear mongers. Um, well, I was called those things, Tom. I, I, James Dobson and I wrote a book called Children at Risk, and we predicted exactly what's been happening would be the inevitable outcome if we ever went down the road of uh, changing the definition of marriage. Tom, uh, you know, now we may lose some of our conservative friends, libertarians that are listening might be saying to themselves, why are we going down this road? Well, let me just tell you, folks, how did we go from a debate on whether the definition of marriage should be changed to where we are now, where all of us are expected to participate in Gay Pride Month? or gay pride events. Why am I expected? How do they get a whole month is what I want to know. Yeah. Well, but I mean, why is any athlete or public figure expected to express pride and celebrate the sexual activities of another group of Americans? Just this week, a uh, hockey player for the Philadelphia Flyers, I think it's Ivan Provorov, um, made a tremendous stand on principle. Uh, the, the Flyers had declared Gay Pride Night. All the Flyers hockey players were supposed to go out on the ice wearing rainbow-colored uniforms to celebrate the gay lifestyle. And this guy, this uh, Russian-American, said, not going to do it. Sorry. I, I respect everybody else's opinion. 
but I'm not going to do it. Well, he's getting the you-know-what kicked out of him. Uh, after the game last night, there, he was surrounded by reporters. Why won't you do this? What's going on? Do you hate gay people? You know? And he goes, I, I respect everybody, but I have to follow my values and my Russian Orthodox Christian faith. And on that basis, I'm not participating. God bless him. God bless him. Is that the only Christian on the hockey team? I think there was a player in Florida a few months ago, a single player that did the same thing. Where are all the other Christian athletes? I, I mean, Tom, that, you know, and a lot of this is being driven by woke corporations that tell these professional sports teams, if you want us to be one of your sponsors, then you need to go all in on the equity, diversity, tolerance bandwagon. Now, I personally, Tom, don't care what somebody does in the privacy of their own bedroom. Unless they have a gas stove. Right. But it's not in the privacy of their own bedrooms anymore. That's why we're fighting this battle about what's being taught to little six and seven and eight-year-olds where Governor DeSantis stood up and fought back. That's why every professional athlete and every employee of a Fortune 500 company has to figure out what they're going to do when it's Gay Pride Month at the company. The, the lack of sophisticated thinking on this issue is so distressing. And I don't think it's, it's laziness. I think it's sheer cowardice. It's so easy, Gary, to extrapolate from the unfairness of individuals so that we change the definition of social institutions for everybody. I mean, whether a policy can always and everywhere and every circumstance be made fair to every single person can never be the only question we ask when we establish policy. I mean, we've got yeah. eyesight standards for pilots. That's unfair to uh, visually impaired people that want to be pilots. We've got orchestra strand standards that are unfair to people like me who can't hold a tune. Whenever there are standards, there will be certain unfairnesses to individuals. That's the whole point of standards. So I think, you know, the question is whether we redefine in the most radical way ever conceived the, the bedrock social institutions of our society is good for society. That's the question we've got to be asking. And we have no, I'm talking about conservatives now, we've not yet been able to articulate as powerful a response and pushback to these initiatives as we have to. In other words, you're, or, or you know, the alternative we face is precisely what you uh, prescribed a couple of minutes ago before I interrupted you, and that was our social collapse will long precede our fiscal and economic collapse. Yeah, you know, Tom, the, uh, the, a lot of these arguments and debates when they first start, uh, our opposition makes uh, a libertarian argument, and, and it's very effective in America. It basically boils down to live and let live. You, you know, you, you, what I'm asking for doesn't affect you and, and your wife. 
what, what I'm asking for isn't going to affect your child in school. Uh, why won't you let me live my life? And it's a very effective argument. And, and young Christians buy into the argument. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, I wouldn't engage in that conduct, but I don't have any right to limit the, 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 uh, you know, the possibilities of somebody else's life. But once then we have accepted the new uh, regime about what we're going to say about marriage and about a lot of these issues, then it's not a libertarian movement anymore. It becomes an iron fist movement. You will celebrate Gay Pride Day or Gay Pride Month or else, buddy. You want to get canceled? Then if you don't want to get canceled, put that T-shirt on and get out there on the ice. Tom, I just saw this week, you know, there used to be a big debate about uh, should adoption agencies uh, place uh children that need adopting or foster care children in same-sex households. And there were a lot of people that raised objections to that. And the response was, well, are you telling me you want this kid to stay in the foster care system rather than have two loving parents because you don't like the fact that the two loving parents are both men or both women? And you're like, well, I know, I see your point. I see your point. Okay, fast forward a decade or so. In Idaho, in Idaho, the state health department has just developed a curriculum that every prospective foster household has to take before they can be legitimized to be a couple that can take foster children. And the whole curriculum is lessons in how you must accept the transgender agenda. If we send you a foster child, you must call them their preferred pronouns. And you must agree not to seek any kind of medical intervention for them. And you have to be very careful not to try to lead any of these children on what would be called a traditional path. Not just transgender children, but any children you receive from the foster care system. You should not force your religious values on them, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to read this curriculum And then at the end of the study, you have to take a test. And if you don't pass the test, you don't get to take a foster child. So now, as a society, we're beginning to say, we cannot place a child in a Christian or Orthodox Jewish or Muslim household that believes in traditional values. Better off those children are to stay in the foster care system or in the orphanage. We've gone full circle. You know, ten years ago, when this debate was first broiling, and and Barack Obama was still opposed to same-sex marriage. By the way, Uh, he was a troglodyte, Barack Obama, um, until he saw the light. In uh, when did he acknowledge it? Twenty ten, twenty twelve, something like that. The thought was that the left simply doesn't think about long-term consequences. I know I thought that. I thought they're just focused on uh, doing what feels good, what feels compassionate. I don't think that anymore. I think they actually want 
the consequences that you and I and others warned about 10 years ago. Thomas Sowell, the great economist, calls this um, the stage one thinking. And the example he uses is the welfare state. It sounded good. It sounded noble. It sounded compassionate. It sounded long overdue. But the consequences, the long-term consequences, have been catastrophic economic ruin, a demoralized black population, increasing selfishness as people look to the state to take care of their fellow citizens, and far worse. I used to give these people the benefit of the doubt that they could only see toward the end of their noses and do what they felt was compassionate at the moment, but it's, but the, the, the assault is so total, so omnidirectional, I don't think that anymore. I think this is exactly what they do want. They do see the long-term consequence. They do see the breakdown of the family. They do see the destruction of bonds between families and kinsmen and religious groups and religious fellowships and churches and synagogues. They want. They see it. They want it. They've planned it. And by God, they're getting there. Well, every totalitarian movement in history, whether it's communism or Nazism, or you know whatever it is, they always see the family unit and the church and the synagogue as impediments to government power. Uh, the little platoons of uh, of life, the uh, neighborhood associations, all these things are bulwarks against overweening, overpowerful uh, government. And so, yes, the American family is under attack. There's no question about it. I, I, uh, another little uh, news item. These are not isolated things, folks. These are, th- these are little bits of evidence of what the trend line is. Uh, somebody, some Democrat just introduced a bill in the, in the Connecticut legislature that uh, would allow any child 12 or older to get a vaccine without his parents' permission or even knowledge. Now, think about that, Tom. I mean, that's unbelievable. That's a, that, that attack on the responsibility of parents is unacceptable in a nation like the United States. Now, the, the news report I saw, it was a, it was a Connecticut uh, TV station, and they said, uh, you know, uh, State Senator so-and-so uh, introduced this bill. And um, not surprisingly, uh, the, the state, uh, the voters in the state appear to be uh, divided about it. And then they interviewed a Republican and they interviewed a Democrat uh, who gave different views on it. Uh, and then at the end of this report, Tom, they said, uh, now we have a poll up on this issue uh, right now, very contentious issue. And uh, we encourage you to, uh, you know, to go online and, and vote. Let me just check. Uh, right now it's uh, running uh, 92% against that legislative proposal and 8% uh, for it. So a proposal that the TV station described was a narrowly divided proposal with people on both sides. Actually, the overwhelming majority of people in liberal Connecticut were against the idea of the government being able to give your child the vaccine without your permission or your knowledge. But you know what, Tom? Chances are in five years, it'll pass and people will accommodate themselves to the new regime. Well, we're going to wrap up this edition of the Bower and Rose show, the Bower and Rose podcast with a bit of um – 
Um, home safety advice from Bauer and Rose. Uh, don't climb on your roofs for do-it-yourself repairs if you don't know what you're doing. Florida Congressman Greg Staub is in uh, critical condition after falling off his ladder while trying to do something on his roof. How many people do you know do that? I do it or I did it at least until my uh, better half forced me to sell our house and move to this gorgeous, gated, manicured, astroturf community in the free state of Florida. And don't kid yourself about being tough and experienced. Congressman Staub is a decorated airborne infantry officer. He's a man's man. Served as a senior officer in charge of a detention center that housed the most dangerous uh, and wanted Iraqi uh, war criminals and terrorists. If he can fall off his roof, so can you. Don't do it. Call an expert. It's just, it's not worth it. I mean, this guy was seriously injured. We're hoping and praying for his recovery. Uh, And Gary, the reason I'm looking at you right now is because I suspect you would be one of those people who would be stupid enough to crawl on your roof. Tom, I've always, uh, talking about pride, I've always taken it as a matter of pride that I would, uh, we we have a house that's got some high roofs and I don't have ladders that can reach them. And so I have been uh, over the years climbing out of the bedroom window uh, onto the lower roof and then going from the lower roof up to the higher roof uh, over the objections, as you can imagine, of Carol and everybody else that has some degree of love for me. And I only stopped when I became so unlimber. I couldn't get out the window anymore. And then I finally did not climb you out. You know, your dog on your dog on lucky. Nothing happened. I mean, I I hear stories like this all the time, and we wish Congressman Staub a speedy recovery, a complete recovery. Uh, We're we're praying for him and for his family, and I hope that uh, he can call an expert to come fix whatever it was he was trying to fix. Yes. Have a great week, everybody. We'll talk to you in a couple of days. This is the Bauer and Rose podcast. Wishing you and yours happy listening. Have a great week.